Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we've got another marvelous poem for you today on this marvelous Friday. Is it marvelous? Hard to say, but the poem certainly is. Just call this Friday Miss Maisel because it's marvelous. Wow. Yes, indeed. Indeed. This poem is by the poet Andres Serpa. Um, It is from his second collection called The Vault, which was just long listed for the National Book Award. Um, And the poem is uh, from the second section of the book, which is called The Nightmare Touched Its Forehead to My Lips. Um, And so every kind of, it it was published in the nation as a standalone. And so it also has that title. Uh, the nightmare touched its forehead to my lips, but it is also part of um, a sort of a longer section of the book, The Vault. Um, There's also, I think another, my guess is that it's another part of that section, which was published in The Offing, which also has the nightmare touched its forehead to my lips as like the title of it, but it's like a different, it's entirely different. Yeah, no, and it's a long, um, the night, the nightmare section of the book goes on for many, many pages. Um, So it's quite an extended sort of series of poems and fragments um, of poems. Um, Just like a regular nightmare, am I right? You are, you are absolutely. Um, Well, yeah, we can maybe jump right in. but yeah, this is his second book of poems. Um, it's with Alice James books. Uh, his first book was Bicycle in a Ransacked City, an Elegy. 
Um, and yeah, he's a wonderful poet and I am very excited to, to dig in. Let's dig in. I'm ready to Let's, hear it. All right. This is from the nightmare touched its forehead to my lips by Andres Serpa. For the living water. And now you're all the wells mined for their depth. All of the silence and all of the alls I can conjure. You are not in the living room. You are not in your chair. I drove to the end of the world today. Snow in the forecast. So I left my bicycle and the other half of your ashes at home. Oof. Dang. <laughs> yeah. It's a short one, but it um, it hits pretty hard, I think. It does. And we've had, just sort of by happenstance, a lot of longer poems lately. So That's it's true. Of, it's kind of refreshing to have a, a shorter one, even if yeah. it has... <laughs> even if it's a heavy one. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we often start our, uh, and by often, I mean, we try to always start and sometimes forget. So it becomes often, uh, with a little play by play, a little sometimes narrative. something sneaks in there. It's like a little <laughs> something that gets in the way. You never know. You know, sometimes, sometimes there's something in the poem that's just like, hey, uh, talk about like, me first and then come back to the narrative, maybe. Exactly. No, it's... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's hit me with that narrative. Where are we going? What are we doing? Well, it's very short. There's not too much narrative. Um, but, I mean, in a way, what happens sort of in the poem is kind of summed up in, in the sort of the end of the poem. Um you know, snow in the forecast. So I left my bicycle and the other half of your ashes at home. Um, so we we understand that there's a you in the poem that has passed away. Um, the the speaker has um, the you's ashes and is going to uh, or was, you know, potentially going to spread half of them. Um, and, and so then kind of reading back into the beginning, there's sort of a meditation on the, the absence, I think, of the you. And that's, that's kind of the main thing of it. This becomes clear in the book. And then if you read interviews with him, um, his father had a long battle with Parkinson's um, and actually passed away uh, as he was writing uh, part of this book. Um, and so much of the second section, the nightmare touches forehead to my lips. The you is the father, I think. Um, and yeah, um, there's, but at the same time that I say that there's also, there's a lot of loss and different losses in the, in the, in the whole book, the vault. Um, there's like a Gregorio that's addressed in the first section. And there are sort of, I think, other people that sort of are mentioned throughout. So um, yeah, I just sort of bring that up to like, it's, it's 
it's um and you get the sense that it's someone very close to the speaker them having the ashes it's like you know most likely a a loved one or family member so um and there there's that like yeah. strong biographical resonance throughout it uh which you also get in that last couple of lines with the bicycle as you mentioned the previous book bicycle in a ransacked city um and also i know in interviews he's talked quite a bit about growing up on staten island a borough rich with history for this podcast as it is where the first episodes were recorded we've mentioned a few times yes uh, back in the day when i lived on old staten island um, <laughs> during my early days in new york city but growing up on staten island riding his bike quite a bit um and obviously that is like as a symbolic piece in you know work spanning that book and this one obviously is very resonant and so to have it show up in the last lines here and also to end up not being the mode of transportation being used is potentially interesting um but like just in terms of getting a flavor for this this poem and like the book in general that sort of strong biographical writing is all over it mm -hmm. no absolutely um no and you're right and i probably kind of uh miss the narrative there he he does he drives to the end of the world he doesn't bring the bicycle which he would have done except for the snow um and yeah um yeah i don't know i you know it's really interesting because i i read this poem Basically, I, I, uh, we heard about the long list. Um, I hadn't read anything by um, Serpa before. And I was like, ooh, this, I was like reading about this book. I was like, this sounds really good and interesting. And then we, I found this poem and I was like, damn, this poem is very good. Um, yeah. And like, really compact and short but like i don't know um but then i like i loved it so then i read i like bought, basically bought the book um so then i read the whole book <laughs> and it's interesting because <laughs> classic, it's like <laughs> classic move you know when you it's like yeah it's, i mean what uh, else are you gonna do right like Come on. I, I had to. I mean, I had to. And you should, too. I mean, I um, to. you know, like all the poems uh, we talk about, they're all amazing. And so you should all buy the books um, <laughs> that they're from. And this one is no exception. The Vault, Andre Serpa, Alice James Books, a great press. Um, but it's interesting because. I hadn't realized I had seen that there were a few poems titled with the same title, the nightmare, you know, touches forehead to my lips, but like both of the sections, they read like, they're like one long poem of like these kind of fragments and moments. And um, it's really intense um, and quite different in a way. My experience reading when I got to this section in the book, um, I think it works really well on its own, but it's quite different than in the book itself because it's sort of couched. It's sort of, it's one part of this larger whole and um, 
you know, obviously we're, we're talking about a pretty profound loss and the grief that comes with it. Um, and so the book is, is really amazing for that kind of like, you know, um, one strange thing that's hard to capture, I think about grieving is the, you know, it's not a easy narrative and it's kind of this, oftentimes this insistent recurring pain or something at least. And that's like, this book definitely like kind of um, felt like that because of the way that, you know, a poem never fully ended and, and a lot of like the motifs recurred and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know, like, I just, I felt like I was like, like sucked in and then kind of like, I like, <laughs> like a few hours later, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. That and I think that like, I don't know there as with many things there is like this impulse to try and create clean narratives out of things like grief and loss and I think there's a lot of storytelling and even some poem writing that gets done where it's like you know the traumatic or hurtful event happens and then you know there's a period of like a low period and then some kind of uh like catharsis moment and that can be you know, a very effective storytelling mode to be in, but I do think you're right that it like misses out on capturing something really essential about the experience that is in a lot of ways much harder to capture because it doesn't fit that kind of cleaner narrative that we that we crave because I think in all of our own lives, we would really like that to be the case. It's like, I was sad and then I figured out how to not be so sad about it anymore. And like, to a degree that's true over time, but it's never like, fully true um there is a meme that i actually saw just today um <laughs> that was like it was two it was a top set of panels and a bottom set of panels and the top one was a sphere in a jar getting smaller and on the bottom it was a sphere staying the same size and a jar getting bigger and the top it was like people think that grief shrinks over time but no we just like grow around it yes uh, yeah. which is maybe a meme that's kind of making the rounds right now in mental health circles. I don't really know. It happened to come across my radar today. Um, but like, I think that kind of gets at this, right? Where it's like the actual enormity of whatever the grief is doesn't really change over time. You just figure out other ways to relate to it. Whereas I think a lot of the cleaner narrative way of dealing with that is more about saying like oh the grief actually got smaller or like you moved on or something um in in like a different kind of way and i can see how if it's constantly kind of unfinished or uncertain it's like an unresolved chord in a song you just keep waiting for the next one and i do think that's like a lot of what that experience is like and it's the same with even positive experiences right like that's just kind of a more <laughs> a less storified way of looking at life experiences um that's really interesting and neat and like very challenging to capture effectively. Yeah, no, that I, I, yes, I completely agree with all of that. Um, and I think that 
that resonates with um, what I was just reading in some of the his interviews where um, he he had a really interesting interview with the rumpus and he was saying like um in the book you know i'm trying to open up this idea that there are different options in how we react to suffering throughout the book i'm thinking i want to leave and at the same moment i want to stay i want to be inside of this suffering because it offers me some sort of clarity but at the same moment i don't want to suffer at all um and yeah, I like, and there's also like, this is a, interesting too, which is not like touched on ex, maybe like explicitly in this individual poem, but, um, you know, he was asked about the, the title, the vault, and like, what's the idea behind the vault, um, which does like also come up in the, in the, the poems themselves. Um, that basically, you know, the vault functions in two very different ways. Um, I think I've always had something hidden, a place I can go where I've built my own small world. That's given me an incredible amount of freedom. Yet, uh, he quotes, I've tamped down the earth and prayed for the vault to open. Is my tamping down the earth to bury things? Sure, I can survive there, but I can't live there for too long. Even though it's safe, I want to see a little bit more sky sometimes. Um, I think that if I don't challenge myself, I can live there completely isolated, um, which I thought was very interesting um, and <laughs> personally resonated just like I uh, have my own uh, vault of sorts, I think. Um, <laughs> yep, yeah. But it also, it, it kind of opens up like in the way that you were talking about where like, I think, you know, there's also a kind of narrative around grief of like, you know, it's how you're processing it and how it happens to you and kind of this dealing with it. But then there's also this sense of like, you can dwell in it and that offers, you know, you can dwell in certain kinds of suffering or pain. Um, or just private sort of spaces. Um, and like, there's a kind of safety and freedom in that, as he was saying. Um, but then at the same time, it's, it's kind of closing yourself off to the world. Um, and that, and thinking about it that way, it, it also makes sense, like with the way that the poems happen in the book where it's like, it's like not quite finished. And then it happens again, where it's like, oh, all right, let's try this again. Like, well, maybe I'll spend a little more time in the vault. I mean, the uh, vault can be pretty cozy, right? Like, <laughs> there's, there's a certain kind of, you yeah. know, in like the Lord of the Rings, when, <laughs> when the hobbits are first running from the Nazgul, who are at uh -huh. that point the black riders and like there's that scene i think it was even in the trailer to the fellowship where like they hide under those roots oh and yeah the like comes by and they've got their big gauntlet on the root and iconic. they're right there right iconic scene but there's like this very specific kind and i think some people describe it as like you know when you're under your blanket as a kid and you're still afraid of the dark but you're under your blanket so it's okay there's like a specific kind of 
like controlled danger and security that is happening in that moment where like at least for me when i'm watching that i don't think the hobbits are supposed we're not supposed to think that they feel very safe in that moment they're terrified <laughs> yes but yeah like, for sure i i just think to remember as an audience goer very young thinking like oh they're totally safe right now in that tree how cool is that like they're right next to the danger but they're fine and i feel like that's sort of where like there's an element of that to going into the vault where it can feel like that almost where like being in the it's not easy to go in there and you are trying to like repress it and pack it away and whatever but there can be times when going in there also feels like really safe even though you're right next to the danger of opening it all up. Cause yeah, it's also like, it can be, no, that's, <laughs> that's definitely right. Um, <laughs> Cause it's like terrifying to engage with the vault, but also you're like deep underground and you're in this like, cave, <laughs> you know, you're in your little metal box of feeling and it's like your feeling. And that's the kind of the dark side of some of those challenging feelings, like getting in there can be, can sometimes feel sort of like okay yeah i can just kind of hide out in this too mm -hmm. it's it's it can be familiar in a way um yeah yeah no i think that's really right this one is this poem is so there's so many different <laughs> parts to it in a way it's it's it kind of it reminds me a little bit of um the tone is completely not like this but the um which might be one of our more referenced uh, poems that we've talked about, um, although not in a while, maybe, but To Make a Prairie by Emily Dickinson, mm. um, which right is another... Up there with What the Living Do is most referenced poem. And yeah. honestly, What the Living Do is probably going to get a reference here anyway. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. No, um, right. yeah, no. Tell me more. Yeah, well like one of the amazing things about to make a prairie it's a very short poem uh shorter than this one um you know all that it is is to make a prairie it takes a clover and one bee one clover and a bee and reverie the reverie alone will do if bees are few um and i feel like we talked about in that episode, even though I'm like probably remembering a memory of when we talked about it, because it was uh, it was a while ago, some time ago. Um, there's kind of you know it's repeating this thing to make a prairie, and then like by the end, it's like the reverie alone will do, which like sort of like contradicts basically you know what happens in the beginning and there's this kind of like space that's opened up by the kind of assertions that don't quite like go together in terms of like logic you know it's like if indeed it does take a clover and one bee to make a prairie it can't also be the case that the reverie alone will do if you're in an analytic philosophy class doing deductive logic, you're not going to score very well, Emily Dickinson. Okay, <laughs> yeah, Emily. Jeez. <sighs> Looks like your career as a logician ended before it began. Yeah, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the kind of like deliberate logical 
disjunction in a way opens up, I think, the poetic space that allows it to have this kind of amazing um, fullness and complexity in such a short amount of, you know, words, basically. Um, and then similarly, I think about um, another poem that we talked about, which I am now forgetting the name of. What's the Vijay Sashadri? I knew that's what you were thinking of. <laughs> oh, Nursing Home? Nursing yes. Home. Yeah. Um, I know. I'm very predictable. Um, no, no, no. I just, I was also trying to think of the name of it. And I thought this is probably the one he's thinking of. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, and, and similarly, it makes me think of another poem that we talked about, um, Nursing Home by Vijay Sashadri, um, where that one's in like three sections. And it's kind of about the, you know, this person, this relative of the speaker who's in a nursing home and has some kind of degenerative disease. And then the, you know, the first poem first section of the poem is kind of like a, a lyric normal-ish kind of poem. Um, and then the second section is like a very academic sort of medical ease type thing describing sort of maybe the condition. Um, and then the third section is like kind of like a script of a play scene in a way. Um, and they just happen like you go from one section to the next section to the next section. And there's not like kind of a, um, a deliberate connect connective tissue between them. Um, they're obviously all related. Um, and I was kind of thinking about those. This poem is working in a different way than those two poems, obviously. But then especially in what we were talking about with the book as a whole, where like there are these long poems that kind of are are fragments oftentimes, and then they just kind of, they keep going and going. There's a lot of sort of like um, space, like in between the different parts of the longer poem sections. And I think that is actually also happening in this poem, like the first two lines, um, are like pretty connected, like for the living water. And now you're all the wells mined for their depth. It's like somewhat unclear everything that's meant by that, but it's like for the living, there is water perhaps, but then it's like implied that the you is not living perhaps, which especially becomes clear, I think, when you read the whole poem and then reread it. And then wells could be, I mean, it could be like an oil well or something if it's being mined, or it could be a water well. I don't, I'm not exactly sure, but there's like already the connections are, um, as I tried to say that they were related, the first two sentences are already um, talking about some different things a bit. And then it's like, it goes all of the silence and all of the alls I can conjure, um, which like connects in the sense of using all from the second line, you know, you're all the wells mine for their depths, but the silence and the, the eye is kind of new. It's not, you know, it just, 
it just feels like that's a totally new moment in some ways. Um, and then it, it jumps again. You are not in the living room. You are not in your chair. Um, and then I drove to the end of the world today, snow in the forecast. So I left my bicycle at the other half of your ashes at home. And the last four lines like fairly clearly connect. Um, and we can see how these different parts of the poem connect, but like they kind of just jump without too much like hand holding, I guess. Um, and just sort of sit there and sit there like next to the other sections, if that makes sense. And it's also this, this, it's like both the ordering, like to me, I realized the second point as I was finishing my first point, but I think I need to finish the first point before you start the second point, Connor. Oh, okay. two points strat and getting ahead of himself again. <laughs> Like in the same way that the Dickinson poem kind of has this logical disjunction that kind of opens up the poem. And then in the same way that the three sections like are related, but not connected, it's like the brain is like, how do these all fit together? <laughs> um, and so in this poem, in the same way, it's like, how does for the living water move to, and now you're all the wells mined for their depth. And how does that move to all of the silence and all of the alls I can conjure? And then how does that move to you are not in the living room, you are not in your chair. Um, and then, you know, how does that move to the next thing? And to me, it's like that movement and the space that it takes to like move to each part of the poem, like kind of gives it the emotional profoundness that I feel when I read it. And then kind of the second point <laughs> that I realized um, is that the ordering of the poem matters where like this, the, the end of the poem has kind of the exposition and like the facts of the situation and the stakes. It's like, oh, someone is gone and the speaker has their ashes and this is what the speaker is doing. Um, but like putting that, you know, at the end of the poem, you read, I could see a version of like a poem happening and basically the reverse order where you like start with, I drove to the end of the world today, snow in the forecast. So I left my bicycle and the other half of your ashes at home. Um, you are not in the living room. You are not in your chair. All of the silence and all of the alls I can conjure for the living water. And now you're all the wells mined for their depth. Um, where like the reader immediately knows like everything that's happening, you know, and you can more easily make those jumps because you're like, oh, the other half of your ashes. So then when you get, you know, to the end for the living water, it's like, and 
water is not <laughs> for you, you know? Um, but by ordering it this way, there's like some confusion in the movements that you kind of are holding, I think, like as you're reading the poem, if that makes sense. But it's yeah. like, oh, what's going on? It's like it's sort of like suspense, but it's not like like mystery thriller suspense. It's like poetic, <laughs> poetic. <laughs> um, what the f is <laughs> being said literally at all? Suspense, you know, um, which is the best kind in my opinion. Um, that then is is kind of completed at the end of the poem. Um, but I think those two things like the inverse order and then the these gaps and movements between the different parts of the poem like i don't know it creates the kind of devastating impact it does and with each one you also like each of those sections is sort of associated with like a different action on the part of the speaker so the first two lines are are sort of like the search for connection with the lust person you know the well's mind for their depths is the search for water and that's what the living have and so you're trying to find that essence of life then the next four lines from all the silence through you're not in your chair are like the physical absence that is felt when someone just isn't around you know it's all of the silence that they used to fill it's all of the alls you know you can fill in almost anything there it reminds me of the opening of the Bruce Springsteen song you're missing which does this really effectively as well which basically like sets the scene by like having the camera pan around a house almost with no one in it where it's shirts in the closet shoes in the hall mom is in the kitchen baby and all everything is everything which then repeats and then but you're missing right so it's like this whole scene is kind of frozen there in like storytelling Amber, you can like see the slow-mo camera pan around with the song itself playing in the background. And then you're like hit with what isn't there. Um, and I think that you feel that really strongly in those four lines and that sense of like the world didn't stop turning, like everything is everything, you know, that can sometimes be one of the most challenging aspects of like monumental loss and grief is like, wait, everything's still happening. Like, yeah the world goes on like that's rough um and then like the action that the speaker takes is these last four lines which is beginning this other kind of process because we know only half of the ashes make the trip um but like this trip to the end of the world that indicates a a lot of physical space probably like a far physical trip um but it's also like the threshold maybe of the physical world and like the spirit world or you know some kind of connective place to something more than just everything that remains everything and so i think you're totally right that like having those moves in the poem that create that poetic kind of like dissonance mm -hmm. uh, is really effective and then you still have the speaker that you can follow through them and see them doing different stuff and really experiencing different aspects of the grieving process in each one um yeah it is a lot like the the kind of <laughs> very quick turnarounds that to make a prairie takes 
that make a short poem feel longer and also like opens up so many more avenues for like meaning and thought along the way. No, that's, that's, that's really right. It reminds me of the, that, yeah, that kind of present absence feeling um, is so right. And the, and, and you're so right about the Wells image and the kind of like, you've reached the end of all the Wells basically looking for the water um and that using that as kind of a you are those wells basically which is such an such a like a powerful it's a very complex kind of metaphor there um where it's like yeah it's like you're not only you know in the simplest it's like you're an empty well like you're not there anymore but you've you've been mined you've been used up and also like you are but then it's like you are all of them <laughs> yeah um that kind of yeah which then is like reemphasized as you were saying like so amazingly like the all of the alls and all the silence it's like not just a present absence it's like an abundantly ubiquitous absence um which is really like that makes so much sense when it's such a you know like a father or someone that's so important to a person's world um like the feeling of them being gone is so total and i love to like this little moment of the I can conjure like all of the silence and all of the alls I can conjure this sense of like the speaker conjuring it's almost like trying to get them back but then you get only just so so much goneness silence it could even be almost a little bit of a fourth wall break that's like anything I write in this line anything I can make up you are all of those alls. Like I could make a list of alls right here and I'm Mm. not doing that because instead I'm writing this line, but like all the (laughs) silence, all the trips to the grocery store, all of the visits to some meaningful place between the speaker and the person who was lost, like that list could go here, but you are just all of those alls that I could ever imagine to write. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. I think that that makes so much sense. And especially too later in that, or maybe even earlier um, in that interview, he says, the rumpus asks, you know, did your father ever get to recognize your poetry as genuinely unique and beautiful? Um, And he said, it's kind of interesting. It's one of the sad things in my life. I never shared it with him. It had always been my secret. He knew I was like a poet, But at the time, I kept my poetry to myself in part because I was writing about a relationship. So there's also this sense of like, he really is putting, like creating that sort of, the the conjuring is also conjuring his father and their relationship in a way, in a, and, but yeah, like the, I don't know, the separateness of that the poetry from the actual you know relationship and and father um kind of adds another 
dimension to what you were getting at. Um, my, so I have a question actually. Oh, or just like a thought. Cause I think the title bears some specific yes. discussion and we've talked a couple of times about like agency and that kind of thing. I recently with the, um, Aria Aber poem talking about like how much agency does the frost and the winter within the poem have versus the actual like human characters in it. Um, and then in that discussion and also the first thing that I thought of when I read this title was alone. I stare into the frost's white face because it's like the frost has a face and here the nightmare touched its forehead. Like, Oh, Hey, it's another uh, non-human thing with a like face. Um, and I also think, so <laughs> the first thing I thought of, which is like completely different uh, is the McElroy brothers, the first family of podcasting made a TV show a few years back called my brother, my brother and me, the same as their podcast um and there's an episode where they all get quote-unquote business looks and then they all make fun of each other for the clothes that they're wearing and the best insult is you look like if a carpet fucked a nerd (laughs) what (laughs) okay and it is the construction of that insult that makes it work and the carpet being the one that took action is what makes that so hilarious in my opinion. I mean, if you have to explain the joke, but like (laughs) to me, as I have watched a clip of them saying this probably a couple dozen times, like it's the fact that it's the carpet that fucks the nerd that makes it so funny. Uh Uh-huh. And what is essentially happening in this title is like a forehead (laughs) kiss, right? (laughs) Sorry, it's, this is, I, I see where you're going. Yeah, like Continue. in the title, the action that is happening is like a kiss on the forehead, basically. But the action is being instigated by the forehead, which is not usual. And I feel like a lot of the interesting resonance in the title is created by that reversal, the same way that a lot of the humor in the McElroy insult is created by the carpet taking action. Um but I'm like interested in the nightmare being the active force and having that as something, you know, we often talk about the ways that like a title can hang over a poem. And I feel like that's happening here in some ways, but I'm not quite sure what ways. And so I'm curious for what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, I think um, that is a really good question. And it actually, now that I'm, now that you're talking about it, it reminds me of the very short Langston Hughes poem, Suicide's Note, um, which is basically a haiku, but it, it, the poem, the whole poem is the calm, cool face of the river asked me for a kiss, which is a similar kind of thing where, um, and I, now it it makes me wonder whether whether that was a there's a deliberate illusion there at all. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm wondering that myself. Yeah, because in the first section too, there is there is also you know a lot of sort of um, suicidality of both the speaker 
and the speaker's like friend and maybe others is is like comes up too um but yeah no i think i think you know right in both of these situations the kind of the bad thing or the you know uh is is the agent the uh, the one doing the action like as you were talking about i think one way that i'm thinking about it in part is like you know when you lose someone that is a a pain that you did not cause or do anything to to get you know especially when it's like something like parkinson's um and so in a very real way it's it's like the the nightmare is the one doing the the acting upon you in a certain kind of way but you're right that it's also it's a, such a strange uh the action makes a lot of sense it's like like kissing someone on the forehead is like a thing that people do but then like imagining someone you know taking the for their forehead and like <laughs> sort of like lowering it to the other's lips is like deliberately strange um so it's a kind of it's a kind of action that is sort of weird enough for something to do that it suggests the other person is kind of at acting if that makes sense you yeah. know yeah yeah like i was um so at the very beginning of the second section of the book which is which is just called the nightmare touched its forehead to my lips um there's a very short section and then it comes the nightmare touched its forehead to my lips um then a year where i wouldn't let him enter not this book or the book of the dead um and then it goes on again and then the line comes back a page later the nightmare touched his forehead to my lips it must be pressed against your body in sleep encapsulated the cold shaking like a lover unenterable pixels miles like years away and then it doesn't like kind of come back for the rest of the book um but being the title of the section it's kind of like an echo that's always there too um so i mean and it it kind of makes me think in some ways there's this what he was saying in the interview about the vault and about engaging with one's suffering do i spend time there or do i not like to the extent i have a choice um but then also like it's painful obviously incredibly so but then also it's like the nightmare touched its forehead to my lips like that's a very like tender intimate gesture um it's also like kind of comforting in a way um which which makes me think of the the way that he had talked about the vault of like the the comfort of sort of staying in one's own kind of private 
pain in a way. There's and it does that. have that slightly like oppressive quality. Like the forehead is much larger than the lips, even if you're dealing with like two heads, basically. Like there is this kind of mix of the intimacy and tenderness of the gesture, but there's also this kind of oppressive forebodingness, not just because the word nightmare is there, but also, you know, the physicality of it does feel sort of like ominous and looming, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I mean, just, I was like, just picturing like, and especially in a night at like a nightmare, like the suddenness often, like, just like, if you're just like hanging out and then some, you know, night nightmares forehead is like, like on your lips, like, Ooh, that's pretty freaky. Yeah. I don't, I wouldn't. It's no good. Like that. No, thank I you. I have say. enough trouble with nightmares when in dream space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't need them getting on my lips. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Bad enough in their natural habitat. <laughs> exactly. No, it's really interesting, though, uh, in all those kinds of ways. And it really does a lot of work. And it's another kind of similar thing as the kind of gaps where it's like, you know, at least in this part of in this poem and this part of the poem, when it occurs in the book, like there's no nightmare referenced or anything like the when you. Like it, it just kind of stands alone um, and informs. So much, especially of the kind of emotional weight of what's happening um but you know some like some titles will set the scene like this is the setting of the poem or like you know maybe this is the important object or whatever um and yeah this is something quite different and so then but i think that that kind of the distance in some ways from the the title to the the actual poem man i love this poem <laughs> it's really really good yeah shall we hear it again i think we should read it again let's do it let's do it um all right this is the nightmare touched its forehead to my lips by andres serpa For the living, water. And now you're all the wells mined for their depth. All of the silence and all of the alls I can conjure. You are not in the living room. You are not in your chair. I drove to the end of the world today. Snow in the forecast, so I left my bicycle and the other half of your ashes at home. So, Jack. Yes? I have uh, some questions for you. It's It's that time of the day. That time of the day, um, that time of the pod. That time of the day, that time of the pod. It's pod time. Yeah. 
what uh what you've been reading what you've been listening to what you've been watching what you've been uh you know putting in the old brain space let me tell you i've been watching an absolutely incredible television program from the streaming service hulu it's fx on hulu uh reservation dogs (gasps) executive produced by sterling harjo and taika waititi it's so good I'm so excited. I watched the first episode and I loved it. And it only gets better from there. Um, It is about a group of young kids growing up on a reservation in Oklahoma, native kids. And the show is not only stars an almost entirely native cast with like some white folks here and there, um, but also behind the camera and in the writer's room, it's like an all native production, which is uh, sadly fairly groundbreaking and uh, but still like great that it's happening and there are little there are so many different moments where it's obvious even to me as like a white viewer that that is the case in this show um, there's this like there's this one amazing sequence where uh, a couple of Texas rancher white hunters walk past this uh, father and daughter who are hunting in the woods and the stuff that they say to each other, the ranchers, is just like a bunch of white nonsense. <laughs> Where they're like, hmm, the stock market. Yeah, it sure is going up and down. Ooh, immigrants. Yeah, no, don't care. Like, it's just the most bland and generic white <laughs> nonsense. And it is so clearly like a just well, this is how native people are normally portrayed. So here's a couple of random white guys we're never going to see again. We'll give them just like the (laughs) blandest dialogue that's like sounds really stupid. Like no two people would ever say actually this to each other, but it totally (laughs) captures the whole thing. And it's the same way that there would be like in the past, really atrocious native representation in media where it's like, you know, a couple of Indian trackers go by and they talk about smelling, you know, the horses on the wind or something. And then the white characters run off in the other direction. Um, Yeah. It's like clearly a reversal of that, but there's like a lot of really smart, small moments like that throughout it. In addition to it being a really captivating story that, you know, actually is quite a bit about grief and loss. Oh, there's another really interesting moment. There's this character of big who is a tribal police officer. He's hilarious. And there's this really great set of interactions where it's him talking to a local guy and people kind of gently make fun of him because he's a little full of himself. and He's a little bit of an odd character. And they've also like, there's a, such a sense of community that like, these are all folks who've grown up with each other or watched each other grow up and, and whatever. And he's, uh, there's this guy who's like napping on a park bench and he's a native guy and he like wakes him up and they have a little interaction and he's like joking with him. And then a couple of white cops pull up and they say some of like verbatim the same stuff, but it's so obvious how different it is in terms of they're actually belittling big, the tribal police officer. Whereas this other interaction is like a friendly banter back and forth thing. Um, and so there's like moments like that, that are just really smart, really well-constructed and really illustrative. And overall, it's just like a great show. Uh, and I just loved it. Yeah. I'm so excited to watch the rest of it. It looks amazing. What about you? What do you got going on other than the first episode of reservation dogs? (laughs) You stole mine. 
I mean, I do, <laughs> I do recommend, I was not actually going to, well, I did think about it, but then I was like, Connor, you've only seen the first episode. It's a little premature. Okay. I will say, um, relatedly, because I actually heard about the show on this podcast, which is this land. Um, and it's the second season that's coming out now. There's been six episodes, I think. Um, and it's hosted by Rebecca Nagel. Um, and it's really good and like incredibly fucked up. But basically, it's about the Indian Child Welfare Act or ICWA. Um, and it's about the kind of conservative attempts to, um, and, and basically that law basically makes it so that the state in cases of parental rights gives priority to a tribal nation over a non, uh, a parent who's not part of the, the tribal nation. And what's happened is there've been a bunch of white parents who are like trying to adopt indigenous kids and then are suing basically because they're not given priority or whatever. But as the season goes, it's like, as with everything, it's not really about the kids, at least for the people behind the lawsuits. And it's like, there's a fossil fuel company angle. There's like states rights, like angle. It's, it's just, a, it's a great podcast in that it, it like really, um, you know, it tracks like these sort of individual cases, but then it, it, it's like a lot of amazing investigative work. I don't know. It's so, it's really good. <laughs> it sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. So it's called this land, this land. Yeah. And it's season two season one. I also think is really good, but I haven't listened to it. I've just heard good things about that. And yeah, they just came out with the sixth episode. Highly recommended. Um, Rebecca Nagel, who's also a, just a wonderful journalist. Sounds good. That's on my, it's top of my download list now that I have, uh, made my way through some of your other podcast recommendations. I've got a lot. <laughs> You're really knocking out of the park. My Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.